This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. John 7, we are back after a one-week break uh, into John's Gospel, and uh, we'll finish chapter 7 today. John chapter 7. I'm going to pray and then give a little introduction, and then we're going to jump into the, uh, jump into the text. So let's pray and ask for God's help, and uh, really ask that His presence would be here in a uh, pronounced way through the Scripture today. God, we thank You that You are... Uh, that you are life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're risen from the dead and you're, you're reigning in power and that you're here today by your Spirit's presence. And we just invite you, Spirit of God, to speak to us through this text. We invite you to address our hearts. We invite you to encourage us. We invite you to work as you see fit here today. We ask that you would grant new life to those that don't know you. And I ask that you would grant a renewal and a refreshing to those who do today. Spirit of God, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Chapter 7 is an extremely relevant chapter. Uh, all the Bible's relevant. Uh, this is, ext- I think, particularly relevant because um, chapter 7 is a chapter where people are stating their views of Jesus. There are varying of views and varying opinions of Jesus And that's true in our world today as well. So last time we covered the first 24 verses and and looked at that, how people were responding to Jesus. Well, the same is true in the passage we're going to look at today. People are going to be raising ideas about Christ, but the powerful thing about the passage is Jesus is going to make a statement about himself that arguably is the boldest statement he's made in the whole Gospel of John so far. Now, he's made plenty of bold statements. I'm not sure you can rank them. But this one, given the context, is particularly bold. And uh, so we're going to see what Jesus says about himself. Let's read verses 25 through 31 first. We're going to camp on 37 to 39 today, but let's read this first section. I'll make a few comments on that. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this... Man whom they seek to kill is not this the man whom they seek to kill. And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So again, there is this question about Jesus. He's teaching, and rather than just hearing the teaching in this entire chapter at the Feast of Booths, whatever Jesus is saying, they're all evaluating him. And uh, so folks here are saying, hey, 
I know they want to arrest him, but nobody is arresting him, so maybe they know he's Christ. Maybe the authorities have, have you know, gone from persecuting and arresting to believing. They're just sort of speculating. And someone else says, well, no, when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he's from. There were some Jews who thought that he would appear and no one would know his history. And so some people are saying, well, he can't be the Christ because we know where he's from and the Christ will come from an unknown place. And uh, so verse 30 says, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. So there are still people who want to arrest him, but God has withheld them, uh, hindered them from doing so because it's not the time for Jesus to die yet. So there's still this speculation. Some people believed, it says, and they asked this question. When the Christ does appear, will he do more than this man has done? I mean, what are you guys looking for? This guy is powerful. Is someone going to come along with greater power than him? So this ongoing speculation... Let's look at verses 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So there's this ongoing question. The Pharisees hear the crowd talking, and so they send people out to arrest him. They don't arrest him here, but they come to arrest him. And Jesus is teaching again, listen, I'm going somewhere, and where I'm going, you can't follow me. So people are muttering and speculating, where's he going? Is he going to the Greeks? What does this mean, he's going somewhere where we cannot follow? So... There's this constant wondering. What's he going to do? Who is he? Is he the Christ? Is he not? Why aren't they arresting him? Are they going to arrest him? Uh, And so there's this running speculation. And then Jesus clarifies it all. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the context for what Jesus is saying here is the feast. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Look back at verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So Jesus is speaking at the feast of booths. There were three feasts a year for the Jews. There was the feast of Pentecost, there was the feast of the Passover, and there was the feast of booths, also called the feast of tabernacles. And that's where he is, at the feast of booths. This was the best attended feast. This was the favorite feast of the three. And as a matter of fact, this one simply came to be known as the feast. It was a feast that was characterized by tremendous joy, tremendous festivity among the folks. I mean, it was an adventure for the kids as well because it was called the Feast of Booths because that referred to your lodging. For the feast, you came to the feast and what everybody would do is they would make a makeshift sort of tent. 
Now, we think of booths. We think of two padded benches with a table in between over at Chili's. Uh, that's what we think of booth or a voting booth or something like this. But an older usage of the word booth meant temporary shelter. Um, that, that's an archaic usage. It's not really very common in English anymore. But that's why it's translated Feast of Booths with that. It means makeshift shelter. And so they would take some branches and some palm leaves and make a little tent to stay in for seven days. So you would stay out in the city for, or outside the city, inside the city for seven days in your booth at this festival. And the reason you did this is because it was a reminder of the wilderness. It was a reminder when God's people didn't have any place to live and they lived a transient lifestyle for 40 years in the desert. And so they remember that at the Feast of Booths. And they, they remember two things. That when God's people were in the desert, God provided for them all that they need, and God was present with them. God provided, and God was present. That's what they are remembering. And the timing of this festival is right after the harvest. So they're remembering that God has provided for us not only a long time ago, and God said to keep this Feast of Booths every year, not only did He do something a long time ago, but He's just provided in the harvest as well. So it was a time of great celebration. There were daily sacrifices, there was feasting, there was dancing, as everybody remembered what God had done uh, for the people of Israel in the wilderness, and then you would go to your wilderness tent at night and uh, you know celebrate, I guess, that way, just where you stayed as well. But one of the features that made the Feast of Booths special. It was a ceremony called the water drawing ceremony. Now, a lot of we find out about the water drawing ceremony, and this context is very important for what Jesus is saying. The water drawing ceremony, and a lot of what we know about it, uh, comes from a Jewish oral tradition and not the Scripture. But in the Mishnah, there is recorded what would happen at this, this water drawing ceremony. It happened every day at the Feast of Booths. By the time of Jesus, it happened daily. And, um, and in the last day was the ultimate expression. That's where we are. Jesus gives these words, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Well, what made it the great day for the Jews was this was the climax of seven days of the water drawing ceremony. This was the final day of it. In the uh, Jewish Talmud, it records this. He that never has seen the joy of the water drawing has never in this life seen joy. He's saying this, the greatest ceremonial joy at this time for a Jew to participate in was this water drawing ceremony. And it's this day that Jesus speaks. Here's what would happen. At the break of day, a group of priests led by the high priest, some musicians and some worshipers would meet at the temple as the sun came up and they would proceed, they would parade, they would uh, travel together a half mile to the pool of Siloam. And when they would get to the pool of Siloam, the high priest would take a golden pitcher and he would dip into the pool of Siloam and gather a pitcher full of water. And when he did that, the worshipers would recite together Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
So remember, this whole event is about God's provision, the harvest, God's watering the harvest, God's presence with His people in the wilderness and His presence now. And so this water comes to symbolize all this and this drawing of the water in particular. After the priest would draw the water, he would then lead the procession back a half mile to the temple courts. And when they hit the temple courts, the temples, the uh, trumpets would blast three times to celebrate that they had returned. The priest, uh, the high priest and the priest gathered with him would then go up the stairs to the altar in the temple where sacrifices were made. Once they got to the altar, they would slowly process around the altar with this golden pitcher of water seven times. At each lap, each circle around, the trumpet would blast again three times, celebrating. And while they were processing around, there was a choir that would sing through Psalms 113 through 118. So this is a high ceremony. It's seven days of celebration. It's, it's, it's this event with great pageantry and great tradition for the people. Um, and they would, there was singing. There was a, a solemnity and a joy at the same time about it. As they're singing through Psalms 113 through 118, as the priests are processing around, as the trumpets blast three times after each circle around the altar, the volume would rise in their singing as they would anticipate getting to the seventh time and hitting Psalm 118. When they got to Psalm 118, which is the, the last psalm in this section, the men in the congregation would, would lift up two things before the Lord. In their right hand, they held something called a lulab, which was um, a bunch of twigs, myrtle and willow twigs that were wrapped in a palm leaf. And so it was a makeshift shaker. It was a homemade shaker. It was a you know, children's ministry craft kind of a deal. And uh, so they would hold those up. In their left hand, they would hold up uh, a, a piece of fruit representing the harvest. So it's the seventh time around. They are at Psalm 118. And the men, at the completion of the seventh time, at the completion of the singing, the men would hold these up together and they would begin to shake these lulabs, these makeshift sort of, uh, sort of rattles, sort of shakers, Tens of thousands. I mean, if you can imagine, there'd be tens of thousands of males gathered at this time with just this just deafening, deafening rattle, like rattling going on. And they would hold up the fruit to the Lord and they would quote Psalm 118. The congregation would shout together, give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 118.1. There was dancing at that time, and then the high priest would take this pitcher of water that had been drawn from Siloam, and he would pour it over the altar itself, symbolizing God's provision of water for the people, both in the desert and for their crops. And the people would quote Psalm 118 again, verse 25, Save us, we pray, O Lord. They would then pray, the high priest would then pray, thanking God for the provision for the year before of water, looking ahead and praying for provision in the next year. And it's this day, the great day, verse 37, the great day of the feast. It's this ceremony that occurs on the great day. And the scripture doesn't say the timing, but perhaps this moment that Jesus stands up and addresses the crowd the water-drawing ceremony 
And he stands up and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. With the day's drama, the day's celebration, the the joyful worship among God's people, Jesus stands up and tells folks on that day, everything that is happening here points to me. All that is happening at the Feast of Booths points to me. The Feast of Booths is about the provision of God in the desert. I am the provision of God. 1 Corinthians 10 actually says that the people in the wilderness drank water from a rock and Jesus is that rock, is what the Scripture says. That Jesus is the one that provided for the people in the wilderness. And that's what the Feast of Booths celebrates. He's saying you are gathering to celebrate the presence of God. I am the presence of God. I am God in your midst, and and He will pour out the Spirit on His people. He's provided water for the crops, but Jesus is saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He's saying, "You, you think this celebration is ultimately about a provision of water for your crops, but your souls have a thirst. Your souls are parched regardless of what the crops were like this year. And I am the one who quenches your thirst. I mean, it is hard for us to imagine what it would be like for Jesus to speak, if not at this ceremony, at least at this day when the ceremony occurred. It's hard for us. If you could imagine the the worst timed, most inappropriate, shuddering, shocking comment you've ever heard in any situation, this is infinitely worse. Because he is standing up at the feast, and he is inviting everyone in the feast to himself. And you do not go to a religious feast prescribed by God in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths, and claim that the entire feast is about you unless you are God. And that is exactly what is happening. God shows up this year at the Feast of Booths, and God interprets what's going on. And God even takes this ceremony and builds off it to say, if you're thirsty... Everything you see here points to me because I am the one who comes for the thirsty soul. It points to me. He is saying, I am the provision of God. I am the presence of God. I am God. Astonishing timing. Astonishing teaching to reinterpret the feast and have it terminate on Him. Jesus is saying in this passage, John is recording for us in this passage, that Jesus quenches the thirsty soul with His overflowing presence. This is all about presence and all about Him quenching the thirsty soul. Jesus quenches the thirsty soul. I want to talk about that statement for a minute. Jesus quenches the thirsty soul. If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He seizes this water imagery at the Feast of Booze, and offers himself to the thirsty. I, I think, we first of all, we ought to talk about what is thirst? 
What is thirst? Thirst is a lack. Thirst is, thirst is an emptiness, a dryness. Thirst is a yearning. Thirst is a craving of something that is essential for life. That's what thirst is. It's a craving. It's a, it's a need. It's an emptiness. It's a dryness. It's a strong desire that's brought on when we are missing what we need for life. Liquid. And that is the point Jesus is making here, that he's pointing to physical thirst, and he's, he's making the point that there is a thirst that he comes for, and it's not a physical thirst, it's a spiritual thirst, that he comes to fulfill this, that he comes to give this to those who will come, and he says, drink, or believe. What he means is those who will come believing in me. He's speaking, obviously, he does this a lot. Remember the bread and, um, and the cup and all of his language, he does this a lot, where he speaks, uh, he speaks in a picture, and that's what he's doing. Come, the one who is believing that is drinking. He's providing what the thirsty soul needs. See, Jesus is at this event as God ultimately bringing salvation to people. It's wonderful to celebrate the, the provision of God. I, I hope we just sort of did that in a way in the announcement I made about uh, the history of financial provisions in our church, that it is wonderful to celebrate tangible provision from God, and we should. We should. That's what they were doing. They're celebrating the harvest But there is a need even greater than that, and that's the need for the forgiveness of sins. See, there's a thirst in our soul that is only met in God. There's a thirst in our soul that is only met when we're reconciled to God. Jesus is quenching a thirsty soul which is separated from God, which is isolated from God, which is dead, not just thirsty, but dead apart from the Holy Spirit's work and presence. And Jesus is saying that I've come to reconcile to God. I've come so that you can, so that you can be reconciled, so that you can experience God's presence. Jesus comes bringing life, bringing drink for thirsty souls by quenching their heart's desire of the greatest need, which is to be right with God, which is to know God, which is to have new life. And He will do that by going to the cross. He'll go to the cross and He will take our sins upon Himself. See, we're separated from God. We're parched. We're empty. We're dry. Worse, we're dead because of our sin, which separates us from God. And Jesus comes to bridge that separation so that we can know God. And He does that by dying on a cross, taking our sins upon Himself, enduring the judgment of God the Father, the wrath of God that's due us for our sins, is poured out upon Jesus. Jesus dies as our substitute. He's buried, and then He's raised to life on the third day so that those who will turn from their sin and believe in Jesus will have their thirst quenched, will receive eternal life, will be made new, will still have problems in this life, to be sure. But there is an an initial quenching of the thirst, and it is eternal. There is an eternal blessing. There is eternal life in Christ that He comes to bring. It's not just water for the crops, as glorious as that is, but it's something much greater It's not just God's presence in the desert, in the wilderness with His people. It's God's presence in His people in a new way that Jesus comes to celebrate. 
I mean, how did the people respond to this? Some responded well. Verse 40, they heard these words. Some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is this Christ to come from Galilee? Look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So Jesus gives this picture. He reveals who he is. He reveals his purpose. He reveals his coming to bring salvation. But not everybody drinks. Some said, this is the Christ. They drink. They receive forgiveness for their sins. Others say, we want to arrest him and we want to kill him. So not everybody receives. You know, even if you are a Christian, even if you're here today as a believer, the reality is that we're not always responding to this invitation. And everyone in the room has a profound thirst in their soul. And we can look at a lot of different places to quench that thirst, even as Christians, even as people that know Christ. One, one commentator said, sin is our seeking relief from thirst in something other than God. It, it's possible to know Christ as the one who comes to, with living water to quench our thirst and yet still look other places when we're thirsty. We can forget about the source of life. We can forget about the living water and look elsewhere. The, the options are endless. There are so many places to drink in our world. We can turn other places. We can turn to lust. The lust of our hearts to somehow, we think, quench our thirst. We can go to money, greed, thinking that this will make everything all right. If I just had a little bit more, if I just had these bills paid, or if I just had this much in the bank, or if I just had that possession... Or if I just had this salary, if I just had this much in savings, then everything would be great in my life. I'd be fine. That money will never quench the thirst of the soul. It never will, but we can believe that. We can think the approval of others. If people just liked me, loved me, welcomed me, respected me, if I just had that, then then life would be okay. And, and so we're drinking the, the, wa- the, the bottle of popularity, thinking that if we just get this, that somehow we're going to be okay. And it's, it's not true. We, we can seek religion. That's what a lot of the folks here were doing. They were thinking that what would quench their thirst was in sort of an external obedience to both God's Word but then other laws that they had created. And that's legalism. When they think they'll be right by God because with God because they are fulfilling certain commands that they have created that the Scripture doesn't create, that's a legalism. So there can be a manageable religion that if I just do these things, then I'll, I'll feel good about myself, I'll feel good about being a Christian, I'll feel right in my own conscience and we're just drinking out of the well of legalism rather than coming to christ self-righteousness and legalism are the kind of things that we find ourselves disapproving of others and thinking ourselves right inflating ourselves leisure i mean that's a big one in our culture if i can just just leisure that's that's what i need my life will be great when i can just get out of the rat race take it easy love of pleasure Food. Food. We even have comfort food. Because comfort is what, I, what I'm pursuing ultimately for my heart outside of Christ. Alcohol. Shopping. 
I mean, not that anyone would ever do that in Frisco, but some places they do. That's actually some, that's an idol in some cultures. I'm, I know it's shocking, but uh, shopping. I'm empty, so I'll just shop. I'm empty, so I'll just buy some things. I'm empty. Wow, a new shirt will make me feel better, or whatever it is. Shopping, entertainment. I'm just going to veg, and you know, I'm just going to sort of just fill my mind with television, computer, videos, games, music, internet, whatever it is. I'm just going to fill my mind with entertainment to sort of numb the emptiness that's there, to give me a laugh, to help me feel something. I'm just numb. I just want to feel something, so I'll entertain myself, and that'll feel like life. But but no one ever sits in front of the TV for about four hours and says, Man, I feel alive! <laughs> feel drained, feel bleh, right? It's like a buffet, I overate, ugh. It's a, you can just buffet on, on media and entertainment. Technology, family, that can be one. Family can be an idol. Your marriage, your kids can be an idol that if I just have that right, if I just had their family, if I just had their marriage, then I would be happy. And we're, we're looking for some idealized existence and thinking if that was it, or if I had a family, if I had a spouse, if I had that, then I wouldn't be empty. And Jesus is saying, you can go drink so many places. But here's his invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink, and many of the things I mentioned can be gifts from him, like a family, even like entertainment, um, in, in moderation, even like food, uh, all, leisure, all these kind of things can be gifts of God to be received, but we come to him, and we worship him, and we found our life in him and not his provisions. But when we take these other things and elevate them to be our life, what we pursue, what we want, what we think we need, what, what we crave when it's taken away or it's not there or it's delayed. We're drinking somewhere else. Jesus says, come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, listen, if you are thirsty today, thank God. If you want more of Christ, more of His Spirit in your life, thank God, because not everyone who heard this did. Some people heard this, and I'm sure they said, how dare He stand up on this day the great day of the feast, and talk about himself. Kill him. That's what some people said. Other people said he's the Christ. <clears throat> he's the Christ. And if you're here today saying he's the Christ, I love him, I want to know him, then thank God because you're in tune with this thirst that God has given you and you want the answer. It's interesting that God not only quenches our thirst, but he, he fills us in a way that we may be used to quench the thirst of others, if I could say it that way. He, he not only is the source that, that, that quenches our thirst, but he quenches it with an overflowing presence. An overflowing presence. Let's talk about his overflowing presence a little bit. Verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's not just saying, come to me, and instead of shopping or food to fill you up, I'll just fill you up, and you can just selfishly be filled up with me, and just be content in God with no other, with no other <coughs> means to your life than your own self-contentment 
and happiness. He doesn't say that. There is contentment in God, but it is to overflow to others. I mean, that's what's implicit here. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the person that knows Jesus will have an overflow in his life, and that overflow is for the glory of God, and that overflow is to others. To others, I would say Christians and unbelievers alike. It's an overflow to them, whether they are Christians or whether they are unbelievers. So come and drink. Have your soul thirst quenched and receive living water to flow out of you to others. See, Jesus is taking this feast and He's showing that in Him it's it's actually much greater. It's much greater. They're celebrating that when they were in the wilderness, God provided for them and God was with them. He didn't leave His people in the desert. So Jesus here is saying, what I'm doing is greater than what happened in the wilderness. There, God is you. But if anybody comes to me and drinks, the Spirit, the rivers of water of the Spirit, He says, the Spirit will be in you and the Spirit will flow through you. It's better than God with you. This is why Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, the Comforter will come. How in the world would it be better that Jesus not be with us, the disciples must be thinking. How can this be? And he says, because the Spirit will live in you. God Himself, His presence will live in you. That's what Jesus is saying. If you believe, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. This He said about the Spirit. Come to me and drink. I will quench your thirst. I will reconcile you to God. You will find the God who will fulfill the needs of your heart. You'll find the God who gives you contentment even when life circumstances are difficult. You will meet me. The Spirit will live in you and flow through you. That's greater. That's greater than what these are experiencing and what they are celebrating. He says this of the Spirit, it says, who those who believed in Him, verse 39, were to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given. Jesus had not yet been glorified. Well, He's glorified later. He dies on a cross for our sins. He's buried. He's raised, defeating the power of death and sin. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then He pours out the Holy Spirit. That's when He's glorified. At the right hand of the Father, He's ascended. He pours out His Spirit. That happens on the day of Pentecost. So John uses this picture, he quotes Jesus. Jesus uses this picture of living water to express the outflow of the Spirit to affect other people. It's interesting. He says, out of him will flow rivers, plural, of living water. Rivers flowing out of our lives. What does that mean? I like what John Calvin said about this. He said, that he thinks it's plural streams because they represent diversified gifts and diversified graces of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's true. If you read 1 Corinthians 12, um, Romans 8, you see there are a variety of gifts. And when the Spirit is in a person, a variety of gifts will come out. If you read in the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, there's a number of evidences of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. A number of fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, all of these. And so what he's saying, when the Spirit is in you, it'll be like multiple rivers of God's grace, God's presence, God's work, God's gifts flowing out of you to touch other people. And that's exactly what happens at Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit's poured out, just as he said. 
People are filled with the Spirit, this living water. And what happens? Spiritual gifts appear. Boldness to speak and evangelism appears. A hunger for God's Word appears. Uh, Acts 2 says they were together and, and uh, um, for, uh, gathering together for the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the teaching, devoted to prayer, devoted to fellowship. All kinds of things are happening. People are getting saved. It's a lifestyle where the Spirit of God is working through them in multiple ways. It's living. It's water. They're being quenched, and the Spirit of God is flowing through them, deluging through them with His fruit, with His gifts, with His character, pointing people to Jesus so that others can be refreshed. So that the people in the church can refresh one another's one another with their gift and graces so that the people in the church can bring life-giving water to the thirsty who don't know Christ and reach others with the Gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, we're here for a festival and love what you guys are doing with this. It's powerful. It's meaningful. I love everybody's thanking God for the harvest, but I've come to do a whole lot more than that. And I thank you that everybody's thanking God that He's present, but He's present and going to be present in a way that you cannot even imagine. Is what Jesus is telling them. He's going to be in you and He will work through you. This is why Christ has come. See, the Spirit empowers our service. We can't even talk about service to others without talking about the Holy Spirit. That should be a primary part of talking about service. It's not just doing a job. It's the Spirit of God working through us, changing our hearts so that we can act practically for the good of others and for the glory of God to bring Him pleasure as the Spirit works through us. We can't even speak of evangelism without the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit that opens doors to speak His Word to others. We can't talk about community without the Spirit. It's the falling of the Spirit in Acts 2 and then the building of the people together in Christ. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Come to me and drink and I've got, a, I've got things for you that you won't even imagine. A satisfaction, a peace, a, sust- a sustenance, a rest, contentment, a joy, a love that you don't even know about, but I'm going to give that to you. And the purpose of that is that it not be kept for you, but it be expressed to others so that they receive the refreshing as well. Only God can do that. Oh, there's a lot of opinions of Jesus. He stands up, reinterprets the whole feast, and says this is greater than you folks even imagine why he's come. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you thirsty for Jesus? Are you thirsty for the Spirit? Is there a desire in your heart to know and to experience God? Are you aware of your thirst? See, some of us aren't even aware, and we won't come to Christ if we're not aware of our need. I've had the experience of being dehydrated a number of times in my life, and I never learned my lesson. Oh, I don't need any water. I'm fine. Then I'm heaving and passed out over here. Over a but yeah, I did need that water. It's a, yeah, it's a little too late once I'm seeing stars. And uh might have should have gotten the water earlier when I didn't even feel. I wasn't dying at the time. I don't know if you've ever been dehydrated, but I've done that. I, I've been where, I, oh, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Yeah, I don't, because I don't, I don't sense a thirst right there, but my body is craving liquid because I'm exercising or working or doing something outdoors or whatever it is. And I'm craving something, and I don't even, I'm not even in touch with the thirst of my body until I'm in trouble. 
There may be some of us in the room, we're so caught up in the things I talked about, we're pursuing so many other, other streams that we're not even realizing that our soul thirsts for Jesus. If you're here today and you've never met Jesus as your Savior, you're not even sure if you're a follower of Christ, I, I just want to point out to you that that... That thirst, that's the word, that longing that's in your soul, that what you feel is absent, what you feel you need, that is only going to be met in Jesus Christ. And you can meet Him today. You can turn to Him and believe in Him today. And if you are a Christian, the, the, the spiritual amnesia that has led you to forget and look other places, God calls you to come back today and find your life in Him afresh. Do you feel, do you aware that your soul is in a drought apart from Him? Have you been looking elsewhere? Come back. Maybe until this morning you didn't realize you were in a drought. Come back. If you are thirsty today, come afresh, believing in Christ, trusting, leaning on Him, relying on Him, communing with Him. Are you thirsty for Him? Are you overflowing with His Spirit Are you overflowing with the Spirit? See, what happens, the Spirit is poured out. What he's talking about here, it does happen in history. There is a historical event called the Day of Pentecost, Acts 2, where the Spirit is poured out. But we are to continually be filled with the Spirit, the book of Ephesians says. And those who are filled with the Spirit in Pentecost, Peter in particular, is filled two times later by chapter 4. It wasn't merely a historical event. But it's an ongoing lifestyle that the Holy Spirit would fill us, empower us. And I want to ask you today, do you desire that? Are you aware of that? Are you just just settling? Settling for an anemic Christianity, which is if I can make it to church and, you know, two-thirds of the time to community group and not ruin my kids in the process, that's a success. If I could just avoid really, really bad sins... Or maybe you're caught in one of those, quote-unquote, really, really, really bad sins. And some of the really, really, really bad sins uh, aren't the ones we put on the list, like pride and arrogance and legalism and self-righteousness and these kinds of things. But whatever, your list or whatever, are you trapped in something so that you're hopeless and say, I can never change. And so you've settled for this subpar, sub-biblical existence. When Jesus says, come to me and drink, and there's going to be rivers of water flow out of your, your life, that doesn't mean that life will be perfect. There are people in the New Testament who had rivers of water flowing out of their life so powerfully they were persecuted and beheaded. Okay, so circumstantially things didn't go well with them, but the life of God flowed through them to the degree it cost them their lives. But the life of God flowed. Are we settling? I I wonder that about my own life. I wonder that about us. At times, could we be settling rather than pursuing God and saying, God, I'm thirsty. I desire you. Fill me with your spirit so that you're working through me as a testimony of grace so that your power is flowing through me, so that your character is on display, so that your gifts are on display, so that I'm speaking boldly for you because the Spirit of God is in me and working through me. As we pursue Jesus, that's the Spirit drawing us to Him, and it's the Spirit that empowers us. There may be some of us in the room that would say, yeah, I've had times in my life where I feel like I was much more aware, much more desirous, much more prayerful for the presence of God that Jesus talks about here. And now I've got into where it's like a rote thing I do. I just do the things. I just go through the motions. But I remember the days when I was younger, when I was a new Christian, um, or, you know, 
prior to something that happened in my life, when I was less busy, I don't know, whatever, I remember a time when I was pursuing this. I was praying, Lord, fill me with your spirit, use me. That was the cry of my heart, but not anymore. Well, that's all right. That's, that's what this text does. It's an invitation. It's an invitation from Jesus. He doesn't say, if anyone, uh, except those who've been going through the motions for the last year or two, if anyone, except those who've blown it with some really bad sins in their life, he doesn't say that. If anyone thirsts, Christian, non-Christian, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, whoever, not a certain class, not the more charismatic amongst you, not the more godly and holy among you, not the more, no, whoever, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said of the Spirit. That's what he says. God wants to empower, God wants to flow through us, God wants to be, is in us and wants to minister through us. So maybe today for you, it's coming to Christ for the first time and saying, I need a Savior. Wonderful. Receive life today. Maybe it's you coming back and saying, I know the Savior, but I need to get in touch afresh with my weakness, my inadequacy. I need to be in tune with my thirst, and I need to stop drinking false, false water. I need to come to the living water. Jesus Christ afresh today. The invitation is to come. He's not building categories. It's just those who would believe. It's an open invitation. Jesus is broad. His promise is huge. His promise is huge. And He is doing this already in our midst. It's not as if this is a foreign concept, but I just wonder if He wants to renew, and if He wants to refresh, and if He wants to empower, and if He wants to quench the thirst in your soul afresh so that His overflowing presence would be through you to others. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.